Hey, good morning again, West Shore. We're so glad that you joined us for worship this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with, you to, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. We're beginning a new series on um, called The Greatest of These is Love. Where we're going to be examining the nature of love as God defines it. <clears throat> and I think it's a timely series. But as you're turning, let me give you one reminder, one heads up. Hopefully this week you got the email, uh, and if you didn't, you can get the information on our website about returning to worship in person. So I'm excited to be with you this morning in your homes in this way, but I am really excited that we are less than two weeks away from being able to gather again here in the facility, here at the church building. So hope you're making plans for that. Let me remind you of a couple of details related to that. So the, the first date that we'll return to worship is June 25th. And then June 28th, and you'll notice the 25th is a Thursday. And we want to make you aware of that because we're going to do five worship services each weekend, starting on Thursday and ending on Sunday. So two services on Thursday and three services on Sunday. You can find the times of those on the website or in that email that you got. We also want to remind you that if you're going to come to the first service on Sunday, that's an 8 a.m. service. If you're going to come to that service, we're going to require masks. We're encouraging them for the other services, but we are requiring them for that 8 a.m. service. Um, so if you're not predisposed to wear a mask, that's okay. Uh, come to one of those other services. If you're going to come to that 8 a.m., do make sure that you wear a mask. We'll require that. And that, friends, is just a, a, another way that we want to make sure that we're loving each other well and, and making space for those who are ready to return to worship, but feel more comfortable if, if everyone uh, is engaging wearing a mask in that way. So we hope and pray that ministers to you and enables you to come. So then also we want to let you know that in order to make sure that we can keep our numbers where they need to be, because we have to space out here in the sanctuary, that we're going to have about 320 people is going to be the maximum we can have in a worship service. Now that's that's about a fifth of our capacity in the room. So we'll be kind of good and spread out in here. But with that, I want to remind you that we're going to need you to register for the services. And we'll get you more details about how you do that. <clears throat> but I want to encourage you to remember that you're going to need to register. We don't want to turn folks away at the door. Uh, so we need you to remember to register for the services. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you'll be reminded or you'll be, as you go on to register, if a service is full, uh, if the number of people who can fit have already registered for it, then you'll be redirected to another service and let me encourage you there, make sure that if you have a preferred service and you go on to register and it's full, still join us. I mean, pick another time. We hope that of the five, there's several that work for you. So that would be a great way to sacrifice for one another where we could, one of our highest values, where we could say, hey, I wanted to go to this one, it's full, but I'll go to that one. Uh, and then the last one is I wanna remind you, if you're just not ready to come back into the facility with us, not ready to come join and worship in person, we will have uh, worship posted online for you just as we have all through this time of COVID-19. We'll continue to have it every Sunday, 10 a.m. online for you. So you can still catch that, still join us in worship in that way. We'd love for you to do that. So, and then when it's time, when you feel comfortable and ready, we'd love for you to rejoin us in worship. All right, so I said, we're going to start a new series today. Now I've told you guys that, uh, you know, at different times, I, I like basketball. I grew up playing a lot of basketball. One of the things that you find when you play basketball is that you learn to do some tricks with the ball. Uh, my favorite little trick, which I'm sure a lot of you guys can do, uh, a lot of you gals can do, you can impress your kids with this. For some reason, kids are always impressed. You can spin a basketball, right? So, you know, you're growing up and you play a lot of basketball and you learn how to spin a basketball and you might learn how to switch it from different fingers, right? But ultimately, let's see if I can do this one. I used to be able to do this. Oh, almost, I didn't quite get it. So, but the point is, right, you can impress your kids with that. And if you can spin a basketball on your fingers, people will assume that you're a good basketball player. 
Now, here's the little secret about that is that I could teach you to do that in a week. If you gave it some time uh, and some effort, you could learn to do that. If you can't already, you could learn to do that in a week. I promise most of you, probably 95% of you could do that. Being able to spin a basketball on your finger doesn't make you a good basketball player, but some people might assume that it does. Like being a good basketball player is about being able to make shots and it's probably about speed and agility and, and quickness and teamwork, all these other things, not spinning a basketball. It's not a very practical skill even to utilize on a basketball court. So here's where that comes into play as we start into this new series, right? I think just like some of us might assume that someone who could spin a basketball on their finger is a pretty good basketball player, when really all they're doing is demonstrating a little bit of hand-eye coordination and that they've spent some time with a basketball in their hands. That might not necessarily mean they're a good basketball player, right? In the same way, we're gonna look at a text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that actually tells us that we do the same thing sometimes when it comes to understanding what it means to be mature in Christ. That we think that certain things are the markers of maturity in Jesus, in our relationship with him and being a Christian, when in actuality, it's something else that we have the wrong idea when it comes to what it means to be mature in Christ. And 1 Corinthians 13 is gonna offer us this idea that love, love for others is the predominant marker of Christian maturity. Nothing else but love for others. And so we wanna look at that. That's a pretty bold claim when you think about all the other things that Paul could say in this chapter, that he could talk about our knowledge of the truth and he could talk about our willingness to serve and sacrifice. And he could talk about all these different things that mature Christians do seem to do. But in this text, what he's gonna tell us is that love is the true marker of Christian maturity, love for God and love for others. Now, here's an assumption I wanna make sure that we all have is that maturity is actually our aim, right? That our aim is not to go through life uh, and sort of meander around through the Christian life in immaturity, never growing towards maturity as if just getting to heaven is enough, but that we want to grow in maturity. In fact, our mission statement which says that we exist as a church to seek the good of the West Shore and beyond. And in the middle is through deep truth, deep lives, and deep love for the glory of Christ. And that middle part of our mission statement is there because we understand and believe as a church that it's actually as we grow in maturity as believers, as we grow in the kind of people who demonstrate a deep love, uh, who understand deep truth, who live with a, a depth of character. That's what we mean by deep lives. That as that happens, as we're transformed by our relationship with Jesus, that we are enabled to seek the good of the world in which we live, the place where God has put us and help others come to know him as well. We display him accurately and faithfully and well. That middle part of our mission statement is rooted in Colossians chapter one, verse 28, which says this, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, now get this, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think that's a pretty distinct, almost mission statement of Paul's life. He's writing to the Colossian church. And what he's saying is, we don't have any desire just to introduce you to Jesus. We, we wanna do that, but we want you to grow into maturity in Christ. And so we, we warn you and we teach you, we instruct you so that you would grow to maturity. So if that assumption is, is true, if Colossians 1.28 is true, and it is, that we are to be a people who grow to maturity, and 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that the true mark of Christian maturity is love. Then it's, ne it's necessary that we learn to grow in what love is. So that, that's the sort of argument. And my question is, would you be willing to join me this summer as we go through this text? We're just gonna take 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, piece by piece. 
And I'm asking you, will you be willing to join me in examining the maturity of your faith this summer? Perhaps even acknowledging that you've assumed some maturity that maybe isn't there because love isn't there. And let's examine that together. Let's be open to the idea that perhaps, perhaps there's areas of growth we haven't seen. And let's let God's text lay that bare for us. Let's let God's word lay that bare for us so that we measure the maturity of our faith by the quality and depth of our love for others. Now, here's what we're gonna do. Today, we're gonna examine verses one through three in chapter 13, and then look at verse, uh, as well as verse 13, the last verse, so the first three verses and the last verse we're gonna look at today. And then in each succeeding week, what we're gonna do is we're going to look at, um, we're gonna look at verses four through seven, essentially, which are four through 12, which will teach us what love looks like. Today, we want to examine the question, why is love the marker of maturity? That's really what we want to do. We want to examine that statement, love is the marker of true Christian maturity, and see if we can't, what we can't learn about that. That's what the first couple of verses really lean into. And then what Paul does so beautifully, so well, is describe for us what love looks like. Because we don't determine what, how love is defined. It would be one thing to say, hey, love is a marker of maturity. And then if we all define love our own way, then perhaps we wouldn't grow to maturity because we have a wrong definition of love. So to guard us from that, what Paul is gonna do is he's gonna take time to say love is patient. He's describing that aspect of love. And love is kind. And it doesn't envy or boast. And he's gonna go on to give us a God-centered, God-saturated definition of what love is. So that's how the series will kind of unfold. Uh, when we went through the Gospel of John, we had lots of, uh, we, we kind of covered broad swaths, big chunks, if you will, of Scripture as the best way to get sort of an understanding of the, of the whole book of John, right? We're going to do the exact opposite this summer now. We're going we're gonna to sort of do a study of just one chapter so that what we can do is we can spend time meditating on, on just one phrase at a time. So today we'll cover three verses, or actually four, I guess, but then we'll cover just a phrase at a time for the rest of the summer. And I pray that serves you well. I hope it's a great example, great reminder of um, how it's, it's great to vary your reading in the scriptures, right? Sometimes it's so good to read broadly, read big, uh, numerous chapters at a time. And then other times it's so good to just stop and pause and just go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read one verse. I'm gonna reflect, I'm gonna think, I'm gonna wait uh, on that. Let me say too, um, as, so that's kind of our, our roadmap. That's kind of our roadmap for this series. And I just want to say too, um, I, I think this is such a timely series. Obviously, given what's going on in our country, and, we, and we've touched throughout last week and into this one on uh, the tension around issues of race in our country, I can't imagine a better series than to spend time thinking about what does it look like to love each other? What does it look like to love each other? I'm just imploring you to to, to join me in thinking about, is my first instinct, is my, is my total demeanor given over towards loving other people? Because that's what maturity looks like. And I, friends, I can tell you, I did not plan this series after current events. I planned it long before. This has been on the books. And so I, I love how God does this because one, God's word is timely. And when I, when I say timely, what I mean is this. There is no portion of scripture that you would go to at any moment and not gain something from it. So when we say God's word is timely, any portion of scripture can be um, sought out, studied, examined, and, and, and received from at any moment of life. You don't have to sort of, I gotta find just the right verse for this time, or just the right verse for that time. 
That's one of the attributes of God's word is that it's timely. But I also love how God does so often. I find this is your best one. I'm planning things out. There's no way that I could foresee. I don't know what two weeks ahead is going to look like, or three weeks ahead or four weeks ahead. And it just amazes me that time and time again, something that's been planned and on the books and, and prepared to preach seems to be just right for the time. And that is the work of the Spirit, and I'm glad for it. I hope you agree with me that this chapter is a timely chapter for us to reflect upon. So I hope you'll join me in really reflecting on the nature of what love looks like and why it is the mark of Christian maturity and to allow the Spirit then to examine us. I'm just gonna give you a heads up. You're gonna get challenged in this series. I can't read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because without being so immensely challenged because I think to myself, love is patient. How often am I not patient? Love is kind. Well, gosh, I said something is so unkind this, this morning to a friend, doesn't envy. Oh, I, well, this week I can remember that time where I, I wanted that thing and was envious of that. And, and I imagine that you might be challenged as well. Let the scriptures challenge you. The, the thing about this text is you, you hear it at weddings and all these really sentimental moments, you know? And I think sometimes because we hear it and it's this popular text and it's about love, which is a popular sentiment to reflect upon, we lose how intensely practical this is. Paul is trying to teach us what our relationships in this body, in this church family should look like. This idea of loving each other is great broadly. It really only takes root when you think about it in the context of this church, our church, the church that you're a part of, the church that I'm a part of. How well do we love each other? And then of course, our neighbors as well, clearly a biblical command. But friends, this text is meant to take root in us, in our relationships with each other. So don't generically ask yourself, don't generically ask yourself, how well do I love? And sort of give yourself a pass to think broadly as if it doesn't apply to specific people in your life. Ask yourself the question in this body of believers, how well am I loving? How well am I loving? Am I defaulting first to giving the benefit of the doubt? Am I defaulting first to being patient? Am I defaulting first to not being arrogant or rude? I'm I'm getting down the road a little bit. We're gonna get into that, all right? So here's our two questions for today, for this sermon, all right? They're gonna guide us. These are our signposts. Number one, what do we mistake for maturity? I'm gonna give you three things that we often mistake for maturity. And then the second question is, why is love the mark of maturity? So there are two things. What do we mistake for maturity? And why is love the mark of maturity? So join me. If you have your scriptures in hand, we'll put them on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses one through three. Say this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, I really want you to notice the alls there. If I have all, in other words, if I have them in great quantities, if I could possess every ounce of faith that existed, if I could possess every ounce of knowledge that existed, if I could understand every mystery so that I was the wisest person who had ever lived, if I have all that so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, 
And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, so let's, let's stop there. And we're gonna look at verse 13 at the end, but those first three verses, Paul is setting the stage for us. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here, just quickly. In 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 and chapters 14 are about the use of spiritual gifts. So Paul's introducing the idea that when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters into their life and then gives them gifts. And those gifts are to be used to serve others in your church family, in the body, right? And he says, some get this gift and some get that gift. And in, in both of those chapters, he's sort of doing an examination of how to utilize those gifts. And, and basically, uh, teaching us why they're so important, why it's important that you, if you have the gift of teaching or the gift of leadership or the gift of administration or helps or mercy, why it's so important that you know that and then you use it so that the body is built up. But right in the middle here in chapter 14, he says, as important as those are, and in chapter 13, he's not minimizing those gifts. What he's saying to us is there's something even more important than those. As important as they are, there's something more important than those. He actually ends chapter 12 by saying, I'm talking about gifts. Now, let me show you something even more excellent than this. If I could paraphrase the, the last verse of chapter 12, let me show you something even better than this. And then he goes into this discourse on love. And each thing that he's going to touch on that we tend to mistake as, as what maturity looks like, each of those things is related back to the gifts that he was talking about in chapter 12 and the ones he will talk about in chapter 14. So you'll see things here like speaking in tongues. Well, that's talked about in chapter 12 and in chapter 14. You'll see things like prophecy talked about in chapter 12 and chapter 14. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to some, not to all, uh, but they are to be used for the building up of the body. So that's the context. Now, here's the thing about the Corinthian church that Paul's writing to is that they had had uh, big and wide and deep experiences of all these gifts at work in their life. They were pretty powerful in their exercise of gifts like speaking in tongues, of gifts like prophesying or possessing knowledge and wisdom or faith. They seemed to have these gifts in pretty potent quantities. And they began to believe that they had really arrived to maturity. And what Paul is trying to argue to them is, look, I know that you have all these things, but you don't have love. And because you don't have love, you don't have the maturity you think you have. That's really what Paul is trying to convince them of and convict them of in chapter 13. And I would argue, church family, that is so pertinent for us today because some of the same things that they mistake as being the mark of maturity in themselves, I think we make the same mistakes today. And so let's look at three things here. And we're just gonna touch on each one briefly. The first one is this is that maturity is not passionate worship. That's the first thing. So maturity is not passionate worship. So we see in, the, in verse one there, when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, well, what he's referring there to is the gift of tongues, like I said, that he's talking about in chapter 12. So when he says the tongues of men, he's talking about uh, languages that are human languages that you don't know. So if I began to speak in German right now, which I do not know, that would be an example of speaking in tongues, right? And the purpose of that, of course, would be to share the gospel, share God's love with someone through that gift of tongues. When he says uh, the tongues of angels, he's referring to something that he's gonna talk about in chapter 14, which is really, some people call it a prayer language, but really, I, I don't know if that language is helpful or not. He's essentially talking about the idea of speaking a language that's not a human language, 
that, that seems to bring forth an intimacy in your communication with God. So in communication with God, the Corinthians seem to be speaking in a tongue that they presumed to be like, an, like the language the angels in heaven were speaking because it, it wasn't a human language that they could identify. And yet there was something about that that, that edified themselves. That's what Paul's gonna say in chapter 14, that sometimes tongues are for what he says, self-edification. In other words, they exist to build you up so that you can then build others up. So when he's talking about that then, what he's really getting at is that those who have this gift of tongues that is talked about are speaking these languages and they really are um, demonstrating or experiencing these deep spiritual experiences. So people uh, whom God gifts in this way are often passionate worshipers and have a deep and intimate prayer life. You can imagine that this is the person who you often look at and go, wow, they seem to have a deep connection with God. And when they come and they, and they worship, it's so evident that they love God and that they are displaying that. And what Paul is saying then is this alone, just passionate worship, uh, this kind of intimate back and forth with God, as good as that is, if it's not marked by love for others, it actually is, what does he say? It's like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now that may seem like an odd thing to say, but what he's essentially saying there is those objects he's referring to were objects that would have been used in worship of false gods, pagan gods. And so when he says, if you speak in tongues, it's a great thing to do. Tongues of men and angels, if you do that, but you don't have love for others, you essentially are perpetuating idol worship. That's, that's how I might summarize verse one. You are bringing about the worship of false gods by speaking in this way. And the reason I think that he's saying that is because he's essentially, he's essentially saying this. Why, so let's answer this question. Why is maturity not passionate worship alone? Because passionate worship without love tends to lead to idol worship. That's the argument. What kind of idol worship? In particular, the idol of self, I would argue. That's really what Paul has in mind, is that when we begin to be more about the experience of some supernatural thing or some passionate experience of worship, what happens is we begin to idolize ourselves and we must have that experience. That becomes the focus rather than what that experience is meant to produce, which is love for others. So there's something in there that Paul is getting at when he's saying, look, you are not mature just by virtue of having these kinds of really intense spiritual experiences these kinds of things like that are marked by passionate worship. So here's where here's one then thought related to that, just by way of application. Um, if what the Corinthians were experiencing is sort of almost like these private, intimate conversations with God, which again, of course, is so good. One thing we might learn from this is the idea that worship together is better than worship alone, right? So as we're getting prepared to come back into uh, the sanctuary together, I cannot tell you how excited I am. We've been able to have some staff here at the church recently um, in smaller numbers. But as we gather for prayer once a week, we actually got to do that and sing worship together this last Tuesday. Uh, And I was so glad for that. I just stopped singing and listened to my brothers and sisters sing. Because it's been great to worship in my home with my family. But gathering a larger group of believers, even if I think it was a group of maybe 12 of us just in the room, praying and worshiping together. And I was so thankful 
And I'm so excited to gather with 300 or so of you and to hear you sing the praises of God. And I'm excited to praise him with you because what worship together does is it, it just forces me to see that what I'm doing right now is really not about my personal experience with the Lord. It's about all these people around me and whether I'm gonna love them well or not, whether I'm gonna sacrifice my preferences for them or not. So worshiping with you in the room is so much better. It's not just because I hate preaching straight to a camera. I much prefer to speak to you in these seats. Uh, I, I'm getting okay with, with speaking to a camera. It's okay. I see you on the other side. I have to remember you're on the other side of this camera. I have to speak to you in that way. But really what I get excited about is thinking about praising God together. I get excited about thinking about singing with you and it's coming and I can't wait because worship together is better than worship alone. All right, second thing Paul's gonna touch on then. If maturity is not passionate worship alone, it's also not having knowledge and wisdom. So if the first tended to be maybe more on that emotional side, the second thing he's gonna say maturity is not, like maybe you have this really rich emotional relationship with God, that's good. He's saying that's not maturity, at least not alone it's not. Then he's gonna come and he's gonna say, guess what else is not maturity? If you have this really strong-minded relationship with the Lord, again, a good thing. But if you possess all knowledge, you can fathom all mysteries, which we would call wisdom, right? If you, have, if you usher prophetic utterances, which is a way of saying God communicates to you things about the future and you share them with others, um, you, you know through your mind, God is imparting through your mind something he may do in the future. That's what a prophetic utterance is. So in verse two, when he starts to talk about that, it's as if he transitions from talking about gifts that might be more in that emotional realm to gifts which might be more in that mental realm. And he's saying, hey, perhaps you hear me say, Corinthians, if you have all this, but don't have love for others, if you have, sorry, if you have uh, tongues of men and angels, but don't have love, you're a resounding gong and clanging symbol. And it's almost as if someone might go, that's right, that's right. That's not what maturity looks like because maturity looks like me. Maturity looks like being really wise and really knowledgeable and being able to impart a lot of truth. And then he just turns his attention and goes, by the way, if that's what you think maturity is, I'm gonna tell you that's not it either. And so he says, if you can do all those things, but you don't have love, now get it. If he said about the, about the, the tongues piece, if he said, that's essentially gonna lead to idol worship if it's, not, if it's not informed by love, then what does he say about this kind of gift set? What does it lead to? He says, if you have all those things, but don't have love, what? You're nothing. Now, again, he's not just trying to degrade the Corinthians and say, you're of no value. But what he's saying is, who we are is our character, right? So when he says, you're nothing, he's saying, if you don't have love, that's the mark of godly character. Love is the mark of godly character. You can have a lot of wisdom. You can have a lot of knowledge. You can have a lot of information. You could even be prophetic in your words. And, if you, and you can do all that without loving people. I promise you, you can. You can be the most gifted teacher in the world and have zero love for people or very little love for people. And if that's the case, what he's saying is your character has not been formed to the degree that God wants to form it. And therefore you are not mature in Christ. That's what he means when he says, if you have that, but don't have love, you are nothing. He says, I am nothing. Now let me say that people with this kind of gift set, because again, these are all gifts that Paul is trying to show them. You, you've had this rich experience of these gifts, but they're not truly what maturity looks like. People with this gift set 
tend to be uh, good teachers, good leaders. They tend to be visionaries, the kind of people that other people seek out for counsel. And can I just tell you, it's so easy to begin to believe that you're mature. And you can probably see why. Because people want to listen to you. They want to listen to you teach them things. They'll seek you out for advice because they go, that person has a lot of wisdom. And that alone is not maturity, but it's so easy to begin to believe kind of your own press, you know, uh, where, wow, this person's seeking me out and that person's seeking me out and this person cares what I have to say and that person cares what I have to say. When you have this gift set, it's really easy to begin to believe you're mature. And what Paul is trying to do is rescue from that. Friend, if this is your gift set, this tends to be the one that is more my gift set. If it tends to be your gift set, remember that all of that, all mysteries, all knowledge, if you have all of it, if you don't have love for others, you don't have maturity in Christ. That's what he's saying. Let me ask you, let me ask you an assessment question. You can, you can just kind of ponder this yourself. I found this to be so useful for me. As I said, this is kind of my area of giftedness often. So ask yourself this question. Do I, if this is you, do I get envious or upset when God uses someone else to teach something or to impart wisdom? Do I get envious or do I find myself thinking, he should have used me for that? That's, that's, this is kind of my thing. Why, why is that other person the one that you're choosing to use? I mean, it's subtle. I'm not saying that you're like saying that out loud because most of us have enough common sense to not say that out loud. But we often have something in us that gets jealous when God uses someone else in the same way that we're used to being used. And can I just tell you that if, if you honestly assess yourself that way, and can I just tell you, let me just admit, there are times where that is absolutely what happens in my heart. And, and God has to check me at the door, so to speak. Say, Trent, back up. Because this is not about you. It's about my kingdom coming to the world. I'm going to choose to use that person and this person. And you should celebrate when I do that. You should celebrate when I use someone other than you. Because that's my spirit at work. And it's a good marker for me of whether uh, love for others is, is, is what's percolating in my heart, what's down there, or whether it's really become more about my own sense of uh, my gifts being utilized. So I, I hope that helps you if that's kind of your gift makeup. Okay, third, third thing that is not maturity. If it's not passionate worship and this sort of intimate emotional relationship with God. And it's not knowledge and wisdom. It's none of those things alone. It's also not sacrificial service. Look at verse three. If I give away all I have, there's that word all again. I mean, imagine giving away every earthly possession you've ever had. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, in other words, if I sacrifice my own physical body for the sake of others, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Now, this is a hard one. Because think, what is love if not sacrifice? I mean, Romans 5.8 tells us we know what love is because of Christ's death on the cross for us. In other words, sacrifice is like the predominant marker of Christ's love for us and God's love expressed through Christ for us. And so we might ask ourselves, well, how does this make any sense? How is it possible to commit? I mean, the kind of sacrifices talked about there in verse three are so immense. How would it even be possible to make those kind of sacrifices apart from love? How are those not love? And yet Paul is telling us here that it is possible to make great sacrifices, great sacrifices 
without actually loving. This is probably tied to back to chapter 12, verse 28, where Paul alludes to the gift of helps, that there's the spiritual gift of, of serving behind the scenes. And I think that might be the gifts that he's kind of getting at here. Some of you are really gifted in that behind the scenes, sacrificial service kind of way. Now he's carrying it to this nth degree when he's talking about giving up everything you have and he's talking about delivering up your body even. But I think because all the other ones deal with a certain gift set, I think this is alluding back to chapter 12, verse 28, where the gift of helps, quiet behind the scenes service is in mind. And in, and then what we can learn from that is that he is essentially saying, no matter how sacrificial your service of others, it is not maturity. It's not ultimately itself maturity. Why not? Because we can partake of sacrificial service out of duty without any love. Now that doesn't mean that doing things out of a sense of duty and because they're right and good to do is wrong. It is not. Again, we're not diminishing any of the gifts here, nor do we want to diminish doing things out of duty. But duty alone is not enough. Jesus did not go to the cross merely out of a sense of duty to the Father. He obeyed the Father's will and praise Him for that. He determined and set His will, set His face to be obedient to God. But His heart was full of love for us and for the Father as He went to the cross. You see, it's not just duty alone that marks maturity. Duty is good, but love is better. Duty is good, but love is better. And that's what the cross teaches us. So let me give you as well, friends who this is your gift makeup, let me give you a skill, uh, an assessment question as well. Um, I, you might find that if this is your makeup, you might be on one of two poles. You either perhaps find that I need to be recognized for my behind the scenes service. And if I'm not, I get pretty frustrated by it. You also might find that you're on the other end of that, which is I absolutely do not want to be. In fact, I take great pride in not being recognized. And both of those I would say are indicators, whether it's pride that I will not be recognized or it's I need to be recognized for my behind the scenes service. Either way, if the use of your giftedness uh, requires one of those two things, or you find yourself in one of those two places, I think what's being revealed there is ultimately your service is not being born out of love for others, but there's something else going on, whether it be uh, a pride in your own skill and gift set, or whether it be a need for recognition revealing that ultimately um, you're looking for acknowledgement from others. So if this is your skill set, just ask those questions of yourself. I'm guessing that at times you, you might fade in between those two even. That's a great thing to think about if you're one of those behind the scenes servant folks who, man, what a valuable gift set, what a valuable gift set. But remember, it's not the mark of maturity. Not even that sacrificial service is the mark of maturity. Not if it's done without love. So those are the three things that, that love, that maturity is not. Maturity is not those things. So let's go to that second question, and we're just going to be brief on this one. Why is love then the mark of maturity? Why is it that love, and why is Paul arguing that love is the mark of maturity? And there's two reasons for that. And the first is this, is because love is what brings the practice of every good gift to its fullest expression. I hope you understand what I mean by that. Love is what brings the practice of every good gift to its fullest expression. So we just talked about gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge and wisdom and what Paul is really arguing, it's kind of under, undergirding his whole argument, 
is that those gifts are awesome and really good. And the way they come to their fullest expression, their most God-honoring expression is when love is what is motivating and animating each one of them. You see, when I have the gift of teaching and I do that animated and, and, and uh, rooted in and steeped in love for God and for others, then it animates that gift. It, it brings it forth with power and impact instead of a, a dry, cold demonstration of teaching or that perhaps a teaching that just is a demonstration of sort of showmanship of knowledge uh, or of wisdom. That's not what teaching is meant to be, right? It's meant to lift people into the presence of God through the knowledge of the truth. And you have to love people to do that. Or perhaps this giftedness in the area of worship where you just, this kind of intimacy with God when, when you come into the sanctuary and you express praise to God and, and as you do that, what's filling your heart is love for your brothers and sisters. It animates that gift. It makes your worship fuller and richer and it draws others into worship versus sort of um, being a demonstration of a kind of worship they could never, you know, never ascend to, um, so to speak. So I hope you get what I mean there. Love is what animates and, and brings about the fullest expression of any of the gifts that God has given us. And not just the ones we talked about here, but all the ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the ones discussed in chapter 14. And then the last is this, love will still define us in God's kingdom. So look at verse 13. We'll wrap up with this. The end of the whole text, after talking then in the verses we did not read about what love is like, he then says this, so now faith, hope, and love abide. And when he says abide there, he means they abide now. Paul is talking about now. Faith and hope and love all exist currently in the Corinthians' life. And then he says these three, they, they abide. But the greatest of these is love. And so most commentators think that what Paul is getting at there is that love is greater than faith and hope because faith and hope are things we need now but will not need in eternity because our faith will be realized. Faith is evidence of what is hoped for, right? That's what Hebrews, I'm summarizing Hebrews chapter 11, verse one there. Well, if it's been realized when we're in the kingdom, then faith in a, in a very real sense, or at least strong portions of faith no longer have to be exercised. Hope will be fully realized in the new heaven and the new earth. And yet love will remain, which is what most commentators think Paul is getting at when he says, when he says love is greater essentially than faith and hope. Now, if we think about that, then if the final maturity, if the final maturity we will come to is the maturity we will have in the new kingdom, like when, when, when Jesus brings his kingdom in full, that's when we will achieve full maturity, right? Like first John chapter three says, says we'll be like Jesus because we'll see him as he is when he comes back. That's, that's maturity to be like him. If that's gonna happen, the fullest expression of that maturity is in that kingdom, that one day kingdom. And we are told that love is what is going to mark us. And like, it's not faith, it's not hope, it's love. Then what we can understand is that we grow in maturity, what we will be one day, this thing that's gonna mark us all the way through all eternity. When we grow in that now, we're growing into that maturity. I, I, saw, um, I saw a really gifted juggler one time. So I don't, I don't know if you can juggle, right? So I can, I can juggle a little bit, not a lot, but I can juggle a little bit, right? So I saw a really gifted juggler uh, the other day, not the other day, on vacation a few years ago, actually. I don't know why I said the other day. Uh, probably because I'm trying to do this and talk, which is not a good idea for me. So I saw a, a, a juggler and he said that he practiced juggling from the time he was like six or seven years old, six hours a day. 
And it was, I mean, this guy could do anything with a set of, of uh, juggling balls. It was amazing, right? But he had practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And he had practiced what? Juggling, right? Just like I was just doing. But now imagine, imagine that that same guy said, I want to be a great juggler. I only had Uno cards. I couldn't find a playing deck in my house. That's odd. But uh, imagine that he said, I want to be a great juggler. And then he spent every day practicing shuffling cards. And he just did this over and over and over. And he expected, he expected to become a great juggler. Now, the, my question for you is, would shuffling a bunch of cards make someone a great juggler? No, absolutely not. Is there anything bad about shuffling cards? No, it can be a useful skill set. You can have fun playing cards and being able to shuffle them with your friends. But ultimately, you want to become a great juggler? You got to juggle. And that's a bit what, is, what we're learning here is that if... If love is the thing that is going to mark us in the future, we're going to be great and steeped in love, then what should we be practicing now? It's not as important that we practice shuffling the cards. It's not as, it's not as important that we practice all the spiritual gifts. It's important, most important, that we practice juggling to become a great juggler. It's most important that we practice love to become mature in the way that we will be mature in the kingdom. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps. So, Here's what we'll say, friends. I wonder, let me ask this question. What have you mistook for maturity? What have you been mistaking possibly for maturity where you've said, I think I'm mature as a Christian. Have you been mistaking something other than love for that? Now, let me remind you, love is not whatever we want it to be. Love is defined by God. So we don't just go, well, this is great. I can be mature just by loving whatever I love and expressing that love in whatever way I think is best. It's not what we're going to find as we look through this text. So stay with us. Come back week, week in and week out and learn with us. Let's learn together. What does love look like? We'll begin next week by talking about the fact that love is patient. Love is patient. So let's set our expectations on that. And the last thing is to say, would you join me in prayer this summer? Make this your daily prayer. I'm going to make this a daily prayer in my life. I'd encourage you to make it yours as well. Would you pray daily, God, make me better at loving people. So simple. Don't get complex. Just say, God, make me better at loving people. And watch what happens as he begin to, begins to warm your heart towards others, particularly those who are not like you, those who maybe you've had a hard time loving in the past. Watch what happens as you begin to ask God to help you grow to maturity in Christ by making you love others. All right, friends, let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Help us to love each other. Fill us with the kind of love that only your spirit can give. I pray that your word now that we've heard preached would take root in us. Let us not ignore it. Let us not imagine we have fulfilled it in places and ways that we have not. Let us be soft and tender before your spirit as he comes and instructs and teaches us. And that's my prayer, Lord. You know, and, and I know, that my words will change nothing and no one, but your word has power to transform and to change because your spirit takes it and roots it in us and produces a harvest of righteousness. And so that's my prayer. Would you produce a harvest of righteousness in me and in all your people as we, as we consider your word now? Just let us saturate our minds and hearts with it. Take it, use it, glorify your name through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. All right, church family, let's sing together to close out our time in worship today.